Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome back David Kessler. David is among the world's foremost experts on grief and loss. And as you'll hear, he didn't choose this vocation. As a child, it chose him. He is the author of six books, including two with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and the recent bestseller, Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief. In our conversation, we discuss the importance of grief and healing, and even finding meaning in suffering. So grief is inevitable, and we all know this at some level. However, we never receive any training in how to do it. So David provides essential tools and concepts that help us process grief and move through it. In our conversation, David shares his transformational story that propelled him into his life's work. He provides a definition for grief and takes me through some exercises that help us remove judgment and emotional salience from events that we cannot change. We explore different types of grieving and discuss the possibility of cultivating post-traumatic growth. So before we dive in, I want to let you know about David's commune course, Help for the Hurting Heart. You can find solace, understanding, and techniques that you need to be at peace and live with loss. So you can sign up for a free five-day pass at onecommune.com grief. Additionally, if you're interested in courses on functional medicine, nutrition, gut health, meditation, and Ayurveda, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 130 courses on spiritual and physiological health. So just go over to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. It really makes a huge difference. Okay, without further delay, I present to you David Kessler. Ah, David Kessler. Welcome back to the Commune Podcast. Such a treat to be with you, my friend. I'm always glad to be with you and everyone. It's lovely. I know. We have our own little enclave up here in the Hollywood Hills. You're in Studio City. I'm in Laurel Canyon. We're virtually neighbors. So I recently revisited the course that we made together, um, Help for the Hurting Heart. And it's just a fabulous course. Um, yeah. And it reminds me so much about how valuable your work is and how articulate you are. And of course, you've proven yourself to be the world's foremost leader um, on the topic of grief. And the world has a lot of use for you. Your work is right on time, particularly over the last few years. I mean, just in this country, you know, we've seen over a million people die specifically of COVID. But all of the other downstream impacts and the constellation uh, related to that from suicide and opioid addiction and overdose, um, et cetera. Fentanyl poisoning. That's right. I mean, and this is hitting very close to home. Um, even with my daughters, I've seen it. <clears throat> and 
of course, then not even just related to grief, um, specifically in connection with death, but also many people lost their businesses and their jobs and moved into isolation because of quarantine became increasingly lonely uh, and disconnected. So, um, so as I say, your work is more valuable and, and useful um, than ever. Um, but I, I think it would be helpful for people to learn a little bit more about you because um, I've often heard you say that you didn't choose this line right, of work, right. uh, that this vocation um, chose you. So maybe you could describe a little sure. bit about how you came to be the expert that you are. Yeah, and I just also want to just add a little to what you said. First of all, I'm I'm honored to be one of the people that helps in the world with this topic. And, you know, it isn't a topic that you dive into. <laughs> you know, whenever I get criticism, I'm like, you know, this isn't a topic anyone chooses lightly to work into. Um I was 13 years old. I'd had a mother who was in and out of hospitals. And I always just assumed that was going to be her life, in and out of hospitals. One day she got really sick. We had to go to a city a few hours away at a hotel. And I was 13. You had to be 14. Couldn't visit. So I was always in the lobby hoping a nice nurse would let me in. And one day we were over at the hotel and someone yelled fire. There was a fire, a huge evacuation. We're all outside. The fire trucks pull up. I mean, I'm a 13 year old boy. It's all interesting to me. And then all of a sudden shooting starts and it turns out it was an active shooter. Went on for 13 hours. One of the first mass shootings in the U S and you know, I saw so many people die hotel guests, first responders, chief of police, just, it was really just horrific. And, you know, it was, how do I hold all that from, oh, it's adventurous. It's horrific. It's all of those things. And then my mother dies alone. Mm. So the only words anyone had for me was be strong, which is kind of like, forget about you, take care of everyone else, ignore those feelings. And I really felt the trauma of it, the grief of it. I was just going to be damaged this lifetime. It was just over. I was going to be this broken individual. And I really tried to find some healing. And I went to community college. And there was two classes that everyone said were the easy ones. One was human sexuality. It was already full. And the other one was on death and dying. And hmm. I took the on death and dying one. And there was this woman I learned about, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, that like had a language for what I was feeling. Hmm. And so I thought, oh, there's hope here. So that became my quest for my own healing. Eventually, you know, went into end of life care tried to figure out, is there a better way to do the experience I had been through? Because it was such a horrible way to say goodbye to someone. And I think we see that there are better ways to say goodbye. And so I was really honored later in life. I got to know Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. We did two books together. We, I was honored to adapt her 
stages of dying for stages of grief. Mm -hmm. They were so misunderstood, still are misunderstood. I always sort of half jokingly say, page one, we say of that book on grief and grieving, they're not linear. There's no one right way to do grief. There's no model. Grief's organic, you know, and people still are like, don't make us follow your rules. And I'm like, just read page one. There's no rules in grief. It's very messy. It's very messy. So honored to work with her, to have her as a teacher. I also had a wonderful friend, Louise Hay. Mm. She and I did a book together called You Can Heal Your Heart. About, you know, people were like, how do you take positive psychology and apply it to grief and loss? And I love that we were able to do that because I think people think you're going to go, there is no death. And it's like, no, there is death. How can we approach it in a holistic healing way? So have had this wonderful career um, helping people, healing myself. I'm such a believer in helping is healing. And after decades of doing this work, have two sons. I get a call. My younger son, David, 21 years old, died unexpectedly. And so it's as brutal as anyone would think it is. I wanted to write a note to every parent I'd ever counseled saying, I had no idea how bad the pain was. Mm. And I once again really wondered, is this recoverable? Mm. Can I find my way through this darkness? And, you know, in this life, we go through these horrendous things, breakups, divorce, betrayal, pet loss, all these things, you know, and death of a loved one and death of a child. And I am so grateful that over the years, I helped and sat at the feet of people who found happiness and joy after just horrific things that they were really my evidence that it was still possible. So I sort of, you know, was trying to figure out how to get through that loss. And I would watch myself up, I'm in denial, up, I'm in anger, I'm in the stages, da, da, da. It all seems to, you know, I kind of thought, is everything I've taught going to be true still? And it was. But when I got to acceptance, I was like, just beginning to do the dance of I'm going to have to accept this, I went, I can't stop here. This just can't be, up. Oh, he's gone, I'm going to accept it. I needed more, and that turned out to be meaning. And I had studied meaning, and I wanted to figure out how to really apply it to loss and Viktor Frankl's work on meaning. And what I came up with in my own healing was that I think the thing that people misunderstand is if you talk about meaning, it's not in the horrible death. I mean, there's no meaning in a horrible COVID death or a horrible murder or a child dying or your pet dying. Meaning is in us, and it's what we do after the death. So what meaning could I make? And, you know, I decided to write a book about it. And I was really honored that the Kubler-Ross family and foundation, people kept going, that's the sixth stage, allowed me to make meaning a sixth stage. So the book was Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief. And it was sort of my path 
to find healing and meaning. And, you know, I think there's people who look at the book, and that's the one thing about the title, they'll go, finding meaning, I'm not there. Mm -hmm. And I'll go, the book's about excavating the pain. Mm -hmm. When you get rid of the pain, you find the meaning underneath it. Yeah. You know, so that's sort of how I came to all of this. Yeah. So interesting, David. There's so much there uh, that I want to pull at. I mean, um, my grandfather, who I just absolutely cherished, um, he lost his daughter when she was in her late 20s. Uh, she was on, um, she lived in Chicago and uh, she was on a bicycle with her, her little infant on the back. And uh, the circumstances are somewhat mysterious, but she fell and hit her head. And um, the baby, uh, Terry, was put on the evening news. And uh, a friend of my grandfather's called him and said, Arthur, pick up the phone uh, or, you know, put the TV on. I think Terry's on the news. Um, and, um, and that's how he found out that his daughter had died. And, um, like you said, you know, our culture seems to, um, underwrite this kind of notion of, well, you know, you just have to move on kind of like buck up, be strong, move on. And, you know, he was, is, he was of, you know, the great generation or whatever, this generation of very kind of strong men who didn't necessarily outwardly show a lot of emotion. And, um, you know, it was really hard for him. I mean, I witnessed how difficult, how much pain that he went through. But like you said, on the other side, what he found was meaning in family. And he spent the rest of his life making it so easy for all the other grandkids and nephews and nieces and cousins to come visit. He bought an apartment that was way too big for just himself and my grandmother just to be able to assemble people. And he just, he, we called him Mr. Possible because he made all of our lives possible. And, you know, he found that post-traumatic growth in the pain. I mean, uh, I think of the great Dostoevsky quote, which Victor Frankl says, he's like, his great fear is, am I worthy of my suffering? <laughs> and, um, and of course, there are wonderful examples uh, out there. I think the woman that started uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right? right? But here's the thing. Post-traumatic growth occurs, occurs more than post-traumatic stress. Oh, we talk more about post-traumatic stress. Mm. And we also, amazing story that you have, but we also know someone, their spouse died and they don't leave the house anymore. Right. You know, their parent died and they never seem to individuate themselves. And so many people that it ends up destroying their world. Yeah. And they can't find life after loss. And we mentioned the pandemic, and I had a moment that I think illustrates this really well. Really early on in the pandemic, friend comes over, 
walking six feet apart on the street, and we're talking. A young woman walks up and bursts into tears, and she says, I'm one of your neighbors. I heard you do something about grief. And I said, yes, and I explained. And she said, my wedding's been postponed. And she was just heartbroken. And I talked to her, talked for a few minutes. My friend sort of listened. And then afterwards, she said, thank you, after we chatted. And she left, and I said, we could talk again. And my friend said, oh, my gosh. I can't believe you were so patient with her. Here, your son died. That's real grief. She's going to have her wedding in another three months. Now we know it would have been probably another year or two, but she's going to have a wedding. And he goes, that's not grief. And I said, it actually is. Mm. You know, you don't understand. One of the things is grief is a word for so many losses. Yeah. And she did have a real loss. And here's the thing. For her at 20, that actually was the worst grief she had ever been through. Mm. It was the worst loss. And I always tell people, people are like, which is the worst loss? Is it your pet that's there 24 hours a day for 17 years? Is it your child? Is it your husband, your wife of 40 years? And I always go, the worst loss is yours. Yeah. It's yours. There's a subjectivity to it. Um, And if we go into our brain to compare, we get out of our heart. We don't have a broken mind. We have a broken heart. Comparing never helps with healing. I think it is really, it is really helpful um, for people to not be ashamed of their own guilt or of their own grief. Or guilt for that matter, absolutely. (laughs) Because guilt's a big companion with grief. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, I think, and we do, just like you say, we have a world that sometimes if you're in grief a little too long for others, it can make them uncomfortable. And we want you to move on and we want you to get over it because we want you to be happy. But sometimes also this grief is making us uncomfortable. That's right. And, you know, one thing that you speak about so eloquently is that and as it pertains to this woman that you and your friend ran into, is that it seems as if she wanted her grief to be witnessed, to be of seen. Of course. Can you talk about how how important that is for healing? Yeah, we're not meant to be islands of grief. Studies over and over in grief and trauma show that we need each other to heal. We need community. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, people are like, oh, it's been shown in studies, but like, Have we ever heard, oh, someone isolated for 20 years, it really healed them? I mean, we kind of intuitively know isolation is not a healing thing to do. I mean, it's actually considered the worst torture that you can do to someone. Yeah, next to the death penalty, right? Next to the death, (laughs) right, penalty. So we need others, and we need them to witness our grief, to see our pain, to see what we're going through. Whatever it is, whether it's your pet, your spouse, your child, your job loss, all those things. 
And I got to tell you, I'm going to say something so politically incorrect in the grief world. So bizarre to even say this. Mm -hmm. I miss my son every day. It's just, I can't tell you the level of heartbreak I live with around that. And I've still found joy and I've still found happiness in his honor. And decades ago, I was fired from a job and it was traumatic for me. To this day, I have nightmares about being fired. Now, you logically, I would have said, once your child dies, that's going to be your only nightmare. And I wake up from the nightmare about the job and I'm like, I can't believe my mind is still revolving around that. These other losses are traumatic. Yeah. And so, you know, when I always talk about all grief does not have trauma, but all trauma has grief. Yeah. And so, you know, people will often say, because after my son died, my dog of 17 years died. And, you know, then another family member and they're like, oh, my gosh, which was the worst? And I'm like, why do I have to choose? Yeah. They were all horrible. Yeah, the comparison is futile. But I, I think in terms of the, the firing, for example... That was an assault on your own self-worth. Right. And my identity. And your identity. And, and traumatic and broadsided yeah. and all those things. Yeah. Um, so that's still, I'm like, really? That's still around? No, okay. I, I, it's curious. I know. Um, I, um, I think, you know, one of the things that you point out uh, around ongoing grief is um, related to our tendency to anchor our perception of ourselves in our own personal folklore, if you will. You know, we continue to tell ourselves stories about ourselves that then um, prop up a certain kind of identity that we want to uh, display to the world or, or that we feel most comfortable with. And you have an exercise that I find to be really, really helpful to kind of untangle um, the story from the actual fact, from the event itself. Um, and, you know, we could play this out together a little bit, but, I, you, you know, you, I know that you've, um, you know, given some examples in the past of... Uh, sure, I can do that. ...of like, um, you know, a, a young daughter whose father leaves and, and doesn't wave goodbye you know, at the end and as a culmination Yeah, let me tell that just so they yeah, have a context. Have a context yeah. So we're story-making machines. Some stories we get before we can even realize that we're story-making machines. There's a, a young girl whose parents are divorcing. She's following her dad around the house as he's moving out. She kind of wishes, you know, that he just, why him? Why does he have to go? She loves her dad. He's packed up, he's in the station wagon, got everything packed up, and she's standing there like at five years old. He's getting ready to drive away. And she's recounting this story decades later, this grown woman. And she says, do you know how in all those books and movies, the dad turns around as he drives away and goes, don't you worry, honey, daddy's coming back for you. She said he just drove away. Just drove away, no look back. She 
then internalizes that without any adults around to go, oh my goodness, honey, that's not about you. She internalizes that. I'm not worth a look back. I'm not worthy. I'm not enough that someone will stay for. Decades later, when she's dealing with a divorce, what comes up? Well, no wonder everyone leaves. I'm not worth staying with. And all those old things come up. So it turns out that there's the event that happened. And then there's the story. And then there's our belief system that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. Right? So we all live with those things. The exercise, and I adapted it from a friend of mine, Neil Strauss's work. Um, it goes like this. And it's about noticing I'll just do it. Yeah. So you want to do it with me or should yeah, I? Yeah, well, we, right. we can Okay, we can do, do it. it. Here we so. go. So the exercise is this. We're going to name three events, okay. major events, positive and negative. So at least one positive, however, it can be a mixture. And we're going to say them, just the facts, no details, no emotions, just the facts. I'll give you the example. If I was going to do my life, I would say, just the facts. My mother died when I was 13. My first book came out in 1995. My son died six years ago. That's the facts. The unadulterated facts. Unadulterated facts. No, you want to go no, ahead? No bias. No, no bias, no anything. No Just the facts. <laughs> sure. So I'll give you three. Um, I had cancer when I was 13. I was in a cancer hospital. Um, shortly thereafter, my parents got divorced. And in 1995, um, I married my childhood sweetheart. Great. So now we're going to go back to those same three events and we're going to do them with the worst possible scenario. All of them. Okay. So I'll do mine first. A little more details. My mother died when I was 13. I wasn't ready to be in the world without her. I really still needed a mother. My book came out in 1995. I didn't think I was going to be like criticized. I didn't think that I didn't think through that like anyone could just <laughs> criticize me or the book. And it didn't even have to be based in truth. I wasn't ready for that. My son died six years ago. Brutal then, brutal now. Still miss him. Okay? okay. Now, your three things don't change. Exactly right, the right. same ones. Um, so I was in Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in 1983. Um, I had a roommate with terminal leukemia. I was in the pediatrics ward. I was incredibly scared and shocked and not ready to emotionally process what was going on around me, even though my case was not that bad. Um, my parents got divorced not that much later. By the way, 
in this real exercise, I would stop you from adding the my case was not that bad. Oh yeah, you're right. In yeah, this yeah, scenario, yeah. In this it's case, horrible. Right. That's okay? true. Right. Um, my parents got divorced. My mother left. I thought I could save the marriage because I thought it was about me on some level, but I couldn't. And um, in 1995, when I was 24, I married Skylar. And I was really scared then too. Because I'm not sure I was ready to like live up to my side of the bargain. I didn't know if I was emotionally equipped to really be a part of it. Okay. Now, we're going to do the same three events again. Here's the thing. The events never change. Yeah. The events never change. So let's do them again with the most positive aspect. Even the worst ones. Okay? My mother died when I was 13. Wasn't ready for that. Wasn't ready to be in the world alone. And it changed my life and the trajectory. And it's given me this amazing career to help people. And I think it would be so meaningful to her that out of that horrific situation in my childhood, I've gotten to touch and witness and be with so many other people and help them. In 1995, my book came out, Once an Author, Always an Author. It's a pretty great <laughs> platform, pretty great platform to have. I'm really grateful for it. Six years ago, my son David died. Brutal then, brutal now. And you know what? It's deepened my work. I've gone places with people I couldn't have gone before. I've found a deeper commitment to this work that he would be really proud that his death didn't constrict my work, but was expanded in his honor. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Okay. Your turn, the positive ones, same three, they don't change. Okay. Um, I had cancer when I was 13. I was Sloan Kettering cancer center. Um, and I got my surgery and my treatment and I was okay. And let's just say that place has a smaller outdoor than it does an indoor. Um, so I was grateful that I was okay, but mostly I think I emerged. I went in as a boy and came out as a man in some ways. I learned about compassion and the identification of other people's suffering as mine. I've never done this exercise. <laughs> so um, in the wake of my parents' divorce um, and my estrangement from my mother, I really did need to learn how to love myself and not necessarily count 
fully on others to do that, but to in some ways fulfill my own needs. And that when my cup was full, I learned that it was easier to give, that love could transmute from something taken to something given. It was a long journey, though. <laughs> um, I married Skylar, and while I was afraid that I wasn't equipped to be a good partner, I worked my way into it, and I became, I think, a very strong and devoted partner. But also, I learned that I was worthy of someone else's love. Okay. So, you did good in the exercise. <laughs> so, here's the thing. You know, when I do this exercise, I do it in the course, I do it in groups, do it online in my grief group, and do it with people I teach how to be grief educators. We do this. And I always ask, what do you think that was about what we did? And people will say, it was about meaning making, or it was about post-traumatic growth, or it was about seeing there's two sides to every story, or it's about understanding the event versus the story. And I always say all those things are true. But mainly, I hope it's about you beginning to have awareness. There's a way you tell your story. Mm, yeah. There's a way we all tell our story. And by the way, it changes. Remember, I said my story when I was young, my story was, I'm a victim. I'm damaged. Life is over. Then it's, and, and I can even remember before that being really young and feeling like, oh, everyone's got bad things. Da, 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 you know, we're all just the same. And people were like, no, we don't all have shootings in our childhood. And then at some point, I thought I can, I told this story as a survivor. Mm -hmm. I was a survivor. And then later on, it became more of the hero's journey. You know, and so to realize there's these events and then there's how we tell our stories around them. And to realize there's a lot of variations. Yeah. And we get to choose which we live in. Yeah, it's funny. I Thinking about this, I wrote this quote down from, um, it's, uh, he's a Stoic philosopher, Epictetus. He said, there's many couple thousand years ago. I know where it's going. It's a great quote. Keep going yeah. and read it out. It is not events that disturb people. It is their judgments concerning them. Yeah. And there's many more uh, right. um, quotes from Stoicism on this topic. But I think that's sort of topic. one of the original ones, I think. I mean, we've yeah. all heard a million variations of that. But it is. It's how, not what happened to us, but how we process it. Because yeah. we all do know the person that never comes out of their house. And we also see the sports figure or the actor who's getting an award and dedicating it to their mom who died and got them through that trauma, traumatic childhood. I mean, we often say about people and about ourselves, oh, well, they'll never change. But life is... If life 
has one thing that's true, that it's always changing all the time. Of course, the Buddha made that uh, observation a long time ago. But, you know, even in the most prosaic example, I used to hate the Lakers growing up because I grew up on the East Coast. Now, you know, okay, the Lakers, they're my hometown team. I've changed my belief structure about something as silly as being a sports fan. But that's just an indication that we are changing our beliefs and thought systems all of the time and that we are capable of, of changing. And a lot of that, as you say, is moored in these stories. Right that we tell ourselves about ourselves that then prop up a certain version of ourselves. And this is going to sound strange to say, but one of the most inspiring places and sad places that I can go to is my social media. Mm. Any day you look on my Facebook or Instagram Threads now. Threads. <laughs> you know, you can find me as I am David Kessler. That was the only version of my name I could get. But there's some quote I'm putting up, and there's someone writing in the comment, You don't understand. I can't heal. Mm, yeah. I can't heal. It's not possible. And I think of, you know, Henry Ford had a quote Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. <laughs> right. And we have two things that are important to know, learned helplessness, where we really get locked into there is no healing. And the other is learned optimism, mm. that we can learn past that. We can grow past that. You know, and in the course, I really go through like the learned helplessness and all that yeah. to help people understand there's trauma that is the reason we are not hopeful. There's a reason when someone says, I can't ever heal. And by the way, people sometimes go, don't even like the word healing. I go, you have a story that healing means forgetting. Healing to me just means the loss no longer controls me. Mm -hmm. I get to purely love my son without it controlling me. Mm -hmm. And that we need each other to be evidence of healing. That's why I have this huge online grief group that people are in. And we find ourselves in each other's stories. Yeah. You see, oh, in tender hearts, I saw this person not be able to get through a sentence without crying and saying they're never going to make it. And then here they are and they're doing better. And I'm a witness to that. So if it's true for them, it might be true for me. And maybe you could break apart um, the experience of grief and trauma. What is the difference between grief and trauma? So I think of grief as a few things. Obviously, we think of grief as the pain. We think of, or I remind people, we don't always think of this as grief as the love. Right. And grief is also a change you didn't want. The divorce, the breakup, the job loss, the death, the pet loss, it's a change you didn't want. And there is a pureness to the grief. If I'm in my pure grief, I would tell you, there's times I miss my son, there's times I've been angry about my son dying, there's times I just love him and just miss him so much. That's the pure grief. Trauma is 
there's some hints to trauma for me that I always think of old wounds. Always, never, everyone, no one, those extremes. I'm always, my son has died, I'm always going to be in pain. I'm never going to be able to survive. There's no one there for me. Everyone doesn't care about my grief. Those are often signs of trauma we've been through. And when we have the grief, we don't get to go to the pure grief and work with it because the trauma gets projected onto it. My son abandoned me. My son left me. Or I'm rejected. Whatever it may be, that old trauma playing out. And it's fascinating. We all do this. Like we, we date the wrong people. We're attracted to the wrong things we think in our mind. And we sort of think, of course, that trauma is going to not happen around grief. And it does. Like, I remember someone in my group sharing that her core wound was rejected, being rejected. And she Mm. talked about her husband's death was such a rejection of her. Mm. And then she told the story of how her life's horrible. There's a place near her that's got outdoor concerts. And she went to the concert early. And there was a row of seats that said, you know, reserved. And she sat down in one of them and the security person came up and said, oh, are you part of this? She goes, no, I just want to sit here. And he tells her she can't. And she goes, I'm rejected everywhere in my grief. And like we, you know, even said to her, I said to her, were there other empty rows? And she goes, oh yeah, there were a hundred other empty rows. And in my mind, I'm like, why would you, like you're creating this rejection. Right, yeah. And we often look back at that trauma and go, why am I attracted to the wrong people? Why am I doing this? And I'm so screwed up and I'm so damaged. And why do I keep doing all these things that sort of re-traumatize me? Hmm. And I go, it's actually the opposite. It's that's coming up for your healing. It's like an old friend knocking at your door going, don't forget about me. I want to be healed. And I'm trying to use the word activated instead of triggered these days. But, you know, sometimes when people would come to me and go, I don't don't even know what to do with my grief. I don't know even how to tell you about it to figure it out. I'll go, "Where, where are your triggers? Where are you activated? Because those are the places where the pain and trauma lives. And it's also, that's where the healing resides. These things that we resist are like a map to our healing. And, you know, I think we have to sort of live with the reality of what we run from pursues us and what we face transforms us. Mm. And that's very true in grief and trauma. Mm. To what degree does one's ability to access the present moment help with one's ability to recover from loss? You have to get in the present moment. And 
boy, trauma will keep you in the past. There's a story I share um, of a woman who talked about how every day in her grief, every day she pictures her husband dying. And I said, what happened? And she said, we were on this road trip, Route 66, going across the country. We're retired. We got off the main path. We went on an old highway. There was no one on it. My husband wanted to take pictures at the giant cactuses we saw in the desert. He crossed the deserted highway to take pictures of me. He got he had to get further and further to get it. He didn't have like, now we have like new phones that you could have like widened it out. But he had to really walk back. And she said he got a lot of pictures and then he started to walk towards her and he stopped at the highway and he was like looking, scanning the pictures. Did he get it? And there was a car coming and she thought he stopped and she thought he saw the car and he was looking at the phone and walked right in front of the car. And she said to me, every day I watch him get hit. Hmm. And I remember thinking, it's horrific enough that he died once but now he dies every day. Hmm. And so she's stuck in that day. She's stuck in that day. And the work and grief and trauma is to move her from that day into the present moment. And that takes work and that takes people showing up that, you know, a lot of trauma work is around grounding that person in come here in the now, breathe into the now, look at five things, you're here in the now. And to get her into the present moment and say, that moment is over. You're not seeing your husband get hit by a car anymore. Look around this room. He's not getting hit by a car. Come into the present moment. What some people I think who don't fully do this work forget is you can't leave her husband in that moment. That keeps us stuck if he's still in that moment. So the work is to bring her into the present moment and bring her husband. So I might say, where's your husband now? You're in the present moment. Where is he? Where's his body? Let's start there. You know, did he get buried? Did he get cremated? He got buried. Oh my gosh, he's six feet under now. Safe, can never get hit by a car. He's cremated. He's on your shelf at home. He's scattered at sea. He's safe. He can never get hit by a car again. Or do you believe in the afterlife? He's in heaven. He's safely there. So we try to move both people out of that traumatic moment. And we often forget about the idea of traumatic grief. You know, there's grief, there's trauma, and there's traumatic grief. And traumatic grief is really two things. How someone died is traumatic, like seeing him get hit by a car. Or we experience it as traumatic because of our childhood. Like so many times a parent dies, there's four siblings. Three siblings experience the death as meaningful. One sibling experiences as traumatic. Mm -hmm. You know, we actually sort of define our own trauma. No one gets to tell us what our trauma is or what our healing would look like. Hmm. 
That was a lot, but I wanted yeah. to sort of unpack all of that. Yeah, it's helpful. I mean, in every experience of the past, what we call a memory, happens in the present. So, um, but that is the difference between post-traumatic stress is that if I remember what happened, I am remembering post-traumatic stress as I am re-feeling it. Right. Yes. It's that you are re-triggering your emotional response. And you're in back the moment. in that moment. Right. And you leave the present moment. And, but I think that just even acknowledging that cognitively, and this right. is why... right the work is very, very hard because sometimes it starts in your head, has to migrate to your heart. Or and to you got to do this with other people. <laughs> yeah, right. That's why you really need other people. But it, the, um, but for example, like I, we were just briefly talking about some of my trauma, uh, I would say an event that induced trauma, what, what Peter Levine famously calls the tyranny of the past. So, right. um, where I was locked in a locker and I think it was in seventh grade or something. And, um, I relive my emotional response to that particular event. Can we just stop for just a yeah. moment? I'm so sorry that happened. Thank how, you. how hideous. I mean, just the idea of this seven year old being locked in a locker. I mean, just, you know, to like take that in there because mm -hmm. it's easy to be like <laughs> yeah. going to our storytelling. Sorry, right. It's true. easy to just sort of go, oh, and the story is well, da, 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 right. and you know, to go, well, wait a minute. I, when I think about it, it's like boys have a strange way of showing affection to another for one another. And this is a, a stranger artifact of culture. But my friends who did this to me, they were my friends, you know, and we were like playing around at school. It was in seventh grade. So I was like, whatever that okay. was, 10, 12 or something. And, um, and so it was actually a reflection of some sort of like playful boyhood friendliness. But for them, uh, for them, for them. But um, it was trauma for you, for me. And, um, and, you know, even though I have a hundred, and one tools to process uh, these kinds of things, given what I do for a living. And now that I'm 52, um, I still relive the, that emotional response to that trauma. And oftentimes not will I only will I live in the past, but I will take that and project it into the future as uh, as some kind of negative anticipatory memory <laughs> that I'm making, even though I, like, nothing's give me an happened yet. Of that. Like what, okay, what? so like I have a plane trip coming up, or I have a meeting that I know that's going to happen in a small office, or anything that right. might have a sort of claustrophobic right. element to it, where I am out of control. And I will become anxious and worried about an event that hasn't even happened yet or may not even happen um, because I am taking an event of the past and right. projecting it into the future. Right. 
And I think many of us live with that kind of anxiety. And then I become anxious about the the potential feeling of the anxiety. (laughs) It's not even anything to do with the event itself. And then I'm walking around activated um, in this anxious state because, oh my God, next week I might have to do that thing and I might get triggered, I might get activated to re-feel that sense of panic that I had when I was in seventh grade. And um, do you want some feedback yes, on this? Please. So yeah, yeah. one of the things is there was claustrophobia, but there was also a loss of control. Right. So, you know, with people like this, sometimes it's to really understand, number one, you can say no to that meeting. Number two, you could change the location of that meeting probably. You have a choice of whether you get on that plane or not. You also can get on that plane really early to sort of make peace with, this is safe. And one of the tools I love is to go, that was then, this is now. Mm. I was locked in. I didn't have tools to get out. I didn't know my friends were safely going to let me out. I'm now in a plane that is a very safe mode of transportation, safer than the car. And we are going to get out. And I have a lot of choice here. I made sure I choose my seat and all those things to realize the control you have in that now that you didn't have then. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Be, I didn't know we were going to go in this direction, but one of the quotes. It's Jeff therapy. Today. <laughs> I know one of the quotes that I actually wrote down. It was a, well, he's an American theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, but he was also a stoic. He was very influenced by stoicism. Of course he wrote, well, the serenity prayer has been attributed to many, many different people, but his, and I'll just read it. So I get it right. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So I think part of your teaching is what you just um, articulated, is focus on the areas over which you have control. And that can be a powerful tool for you. And to know there's an inner wisdom in you that is actually trying to heal you. Hmm. And that plane, that meeting, is actually not being done to you. It's being done for you, Hmm. for your healing. It's an opportunity to go back. And it's the closest thing we actually have to time travel. Hmm. You get to go back to that boy in seventh grade and, like, help him find control And remember, you have control now. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing. When we begin to not look at these triggers and activators as horrible things, but our friends. And, you know, as much as I have tried, like everyone else, to, like, not get activated or triggered, if you're alive, it's going to happen. And it's for you and to allow it, Mm. especially in grief and trauma. Mm. Yeah. But you need the tools. And you need people. I think 
just the ability to um, talk about it, honestly. Yeah. I mean, and of course, you know, we're very illiterate um, in our culture in terms of being able to manage and, and process grief and pain. Um, you know, and, and like we said before, we often get the messages of like, well, you just got to buck up and, you know, don't show your emotions and don't be vulnerable. You know, you'll be all right, you know. Um, but we know this is not a, a profitable And approach. we live with this grief running, the grief and trauma running our lives. It's this misery in the background that we've suppressed. Yeah. It's running our lives. Our relationships are created out of it. Our decisions are created out of it and we leave it unattended. So let's talk about relationships because it, you define grief um, as pain associated with the right. loss of connection, really. Now that be, could be connection to a loved one because they've passed. Right. But it also can be um, related to um, a relationship that Romantic, ends in sure. divorce or estrangement, um, et cetera. So what are some useful tools that one can leverage as they manage that pain associated with the disintegration of a relationship? So I think about everything as a death, mm. a breakup is the death of that relationship. A divorce is the death of that marriage. A job loss is the death of that paycheck in that place with those people. And so we do need to grieve it. The old wounds are going to come on to it. And I think, you know, there's a lot of challenges with that. You know, I've heard people say, I've had a loved one who died. I mean, I think someone said once that like they had a husband who died and they were very much over the years at peace with that. And they found healing. And they said now they're being divorced. And they said it was so different that like there's not someone gone peacefully. There's someone alive in the world rejecting you every single day. <laughs> And how hard that was for them. And I think the other thing that I see, and this is part of those beliefs we're, we're raised with, is so many times, you know, I talk about pain from loss is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Of course, there's horrific pain. I loved being with this person. They're leaving me. I want more of them. That's not possible. That's the pain. That's the grief you have to do. Suffering is when your mind says, and they were your soulmate. Mm. So the one soulmate you get on this planet left you. That's going to cause some deep suffering. Yeah. And it's just, it's those beliefs we're ingrained with. And I always, you know, I when I work with people, I go, by the way, I have a different story about our soulmate. I believe our soulmates are the ones that stay. I actually don't think our soulmates are the ones that leave. 
I think when they leave us, that's a sure sign they weren't our soulmate. But think about what a horrible situation you're in. You had one soulmate, gone. You might have more than one, and they might have not been the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What role does forgiveness play in that process of healing from a broken relationship? You know, forgiveness is a lot like boundary work. We always think boundary work is about the other person, and it's really about us. And it's the same with forgiveness. We think forgiveness is about the other person. Apologizing or doing it differently or whatever it may be. And forgiveness is work inside of us. It's a lot of work inside of us. And we have this theory like people will say to me, I tried forgiveness, it didn't work. And I'll go, (laughs) okay, what'd you do? And they'll go, well, I tried it. And I'll go, just can you tell me your process? And it'll basically come down to, well, I had a thought I want to forgive them. And magic didn't happen. Yeah. I think it takes like, start with usually a 30-day practice. And there's a lot of different ways to approach forgiveness. Can you see that person as an innocent baby? Mm -hmm. Can you also understand that they were probably taught to behave and wounded people wound people, someone wounded them, they wounded you? You know, another thing is, can we forgive their actions or not forgive their actions, but maybe forgive the person. The person might be forgivable, but that action wasn't. Right. And the other thing is we have to acknowledge our own imperfection. When I get into, I don't know if I'm forgiving them, I can get really righteous. Like, Jeff, we all make mistakes, but I would have never done what they did. And, you know, to remember, yeah, I didn't do that, but I've done some other things. I've missed the mark. We're all kind of imperfect, you know, imperfect here. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I mean, forgiveness, I mean, there's a lot of tropes or axioms around it. You know, forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself, not that you give someone else. Or, you know, you can forgive someone and still hold them accountable to the action, let's say. Um, or forgiveness can be, is kind of a one man or one woman show. You don't need their participation. Alive or dead. Right. It's not reconciliation. It's, it's forgiveness. Um, so that provides a good deal of agency. You don't need them to do it. By the way, it's important to realize they're probably not going to be a good participant in that anyway. (laughs) Because if they were a good participant, they probably wouldn't have done what they did. That's right. And sometimes we get stuck in, they shouldn't have done it in the first place. And then I really have to go, unless you got a time machine, they did do it. And we have to have acceptance that they did it. So let's start there. That's right. Um, I interviewed many years ago uh, a gentleman named Robert Enright, who is one of the world's leading thought leaders around forgiveness. And I remember something that he said. I was thinking about it this morning as I was contemplating grief. I wanted to ask you about it because I found that there was a similarity there. 
and he said, there's two types of forgiveness and one generally precedes the other. And I said, okay, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, forgiveness usually starts in the mind and then migrates to the heart. So you have to understand some of the things that I just said, like forgiveness is actually a gift that you give yourself and you cognitively get your head around that. But then to actually truly feel forgiveness, to release that ember that you're holding in your hand, just waiting for the right moment to throw it or whatever, that resentment that you build up, to really release that is something that needs to be felt. And I think this is the amazing thing about your work, David, is that you're able to use words and writing and courses as vessels for emotions and feelings, things that really are a product of one's direct experience um, to help people cognitively understand such that then they, then they can sort of somatically embody it. And so I, I wonder, I'll get to the point here or the question is, is grief like forgiveness in that it starts in the mind but then moves into the body? That's a great question. And I, <laughs> and I actually don't know where it starts, but I know it's in all three. Mm -hmm. I know it's in our mind. I know it's in our body. I know it's in our heart. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to address it in all the different places. Um, you know, even in this course, we have Paul Denniston right. doing grief yoga, who like whenever I would do a retreat, I would have him there because grief is in our body, you know, and he talks about how our emotions get stuck there and our emotions need motion. So it's really important that we address it in all those areas. But to answer your question, I don't know exactly where it starts, but I know we got it and we need to work on it in all those places. Yeah. But there certainly is a, a awareness in our mind that we have to integrate into our soul. Mm -hmm. And we need to allow time for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we get a concept we need to get it into our soul and that takes time I mentioned my grandfather before and when he passed I really grieved I mean he was older you know I think he was almost right? 90 so it wasn't like a disruption of the chronological order of things like the right. way it was with his daughter or with your son, right. which seems like, whoa, shocking, really shocking. He was older. He had lived a full life. But when he passed, I was really upset. I was really upset. Um, but over time, I was able to reestablish the connection with him that I had lost, even though he wasn't obviously physically here in the room with me anymore. But in the same way, it's funny that you said um, that your son would be proud that 
his death didn't didn't impair your work, that in some ways it actually fueled you with even greater sense of purpose to help others. Well, in many ways, I I, I almost judge myself through my grandfather's eyes. I respected him so much. He lived so in alignment with his principles that when I go to that place, sometimes when I say, man, my, my grandfather, he would really look down right now and be be proud of how what I did right there. I reestablished this sense of connection with him that really assuages the grief that I've always felt losing. Well, him. to me, the goal is eventually to remember with more love than pain. Mm, yeah. We got to do it in our own time, in our own way. The other thing that's interesting is there was a time in psychology that it was thought we needed to find closure and sever that relationship. Mm. And there were even people who would say, let's write a letter and like say goodbye, which now looking back is kind of ridiculous because death is such a forced goodbye. Like, do we really need a letter? Like it's in our face. (laughs) And luckily psychology didn't stay there long. And it realized we have what we call continuing bonds Mm. with those who have died Mm. and that that's healthy and normal. And that's so lovely that he remains a presence in your life. Mm. No one is, you know, as long as we remember them, they don't fully die. That's right. That's right. So for people right now who are experiencing grief um, for myriad all kinds of reasons provenances what's the first step i mean what would you tell someone who's listening or or to this or watching this like you're grieving i see you and and here's where you start you have to be seen you have to find some community you got to get some tools grief is something we all kind of think we should know how to do And people are surprised, like even I have a certificate program and even like therapists are like, oh, there's these tools. And I'm like, yes, there's tools and techniques and concepts. But we all sort of go, oh, I think it's just inherent that we would know about grief. So you got to understand it. You got to learn about it. And I think you got to find community. And I think one of the things that really makes us stuck in so many ways is we have our spouse that gets everything. We have our best friend that really gets us. We have our loved one that gets us. And then we're in grief, and that person who should get us the most doesn't. Mm. And they are sometimes the people who are closest to us are the ones telling us to move on and get over it and don't address it. And grief is a strange place Grief is like the one place where family members and friends can become strangers Mm. and strangers can become family members and friends. That's why you want to like find groups and find people. And like, if your best friend doesn't get it, you've got to be a GPS and recalculate. Mm. My best friend's not getting it. Okay, let me go find some support for people who have had a brother die, a pet die, a spouse die, a parent die, a child die, partner die, whatever it is, 
get some support for it. But just start with understanding it yeah. is so important. Yeah, I think in the course, you there's a cohort of people that you call practical grievers. Right. Right. And I think we all know some of them. Who are minute. just move on, get it over. You go to the... You go to the funeral, you cry, and you're done. Yeah. That's it. Don't need courses, don't need groups, you just move on. And that's how they grieve. Mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with them, mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with us. But we think they don't feel enough, and they think we feel too much. Mm -hmm. They're just two different styles. Mm -hmm. So, David, where can people access uh, your work and keep abreast of everything that you're doing in the world. Sure. Your course is a lovely place to start. I'm thrilled yeah. to, we're doing that again. And um, grief.com is my website. I have a uh, program called Tender Hearts. It's, uh, you can find it at tenderheartspluralsupport.com. And it's a large grief group. Like when people hear a grief group, they think six people online at a table. It's not like that. It's hundreds. And you can speak up and be in front, or you can sit back and watch. And it's magical that we find our healing in each other. Um, you can also go to grief is the certificate program for people who want to turn their pain into purpose or really take a deeper, deeper dive into how to help people after they've experienced grief themselves. So last, last question is a little more of a personal probe. Okay. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, what an exhausting, devastating life it would be to like run for office and be a political figure. We were talking about that. And you try, you did it. I did it. You yeah. did it in, in Los Angeles. Uh, and we've had mutual friends that uh, have done it and are currently doing it. And we were like, Oh God, that, that life just seems just so exhausting. When I, when I look at your life, though, right. <laughs> and I imagine the amount of energy and weight that you have to carry for other people, uh, I also wonder that about you. I mean, how do, how do you manage, how do you carry yeah. so many other people's grief? And, or does it light you up and energize right. you? Well, first of all, yeah, anyone who runs for office... Bless them. It's the hardest <laughs> thing in the world to do. We have friends who are doing it. And just to try to make the world a better place is an amazing thing to do with a high cost, personally. Yeah. Um, you know, when I would do, and I'm not doing them that much anymore, in our physical world, bid to big talks. And we would rent out a meeting room of a hotel and we'd have, you know, 300 people in there. And in the next meeting room of the hotel, they would have um, um, the nurses. And then the next one was the realtors. And the next one is the accountants. And at the end of the day, everyone had left. Staff would be cleaning up. And more than once, staff would go, what were you teaching? And I would go, why are you asking? And they would go, because your group was laughing the most. Mm -hmm. And I would go, grief. And they would go, grief? What kind of grief? And I would go, that kind of grief. And here's the thing. I think when you've gone through enormous pain and trauma, it does strengthen your, stretches 
your bandwidth for pain, but I also believe it stretches your bandwidth for joy. Mm. People in that room are happier. Their laughs are more from their guts. They are fuller Mm. people with pain and with joy. So, you know, for me personally, I'm pretty committed to fun. Like in my off time, it's fun. I mean, nothing more fun than a hose and my dog, Lucy, who's, uh, (laughs) you know, a chocolate lab and everyone gets wet and has a great time. I mean, I'm committed to fun. And I think my life isn't as heavy as people would think. Mm -hmm. And it's also really good lessons and boundaries that I do work with a lot of people in extreme pain but it's theirs. It's not mine. I got to give them the dignity Mm. of their own pain and never steal it from them. It doesn't belong to me. Mm. So that's how I sort of keep myself whole in all of this. Well, as you remind us, uh, our grief is a reflection of our capacity to love. Love. Yep. And, um, you know, there's one way to avoid grief and that's, Never to love. And who wants that kind of I don't life? want to go on the journey without it. <laughs> I don't want, I don't to, want to do it, that. you know? So um, really so grateful for your friendship and uh, for your collaboration and for your work in the world. You're just such a joy to be with. Right back at you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with David Kessler. I urge you to check out his book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. And I'd like to leave you with a few key takeaways. Now you can avoid grief, but the only way to do so is to avoid love. For grief is reflective of your capacity to love. Grief is complex. And if you've never been taught how to grieve, you probably need and would benefit from learning healthy techniques. Community is essential if you want to process your grief. And lastly, there are many different grieving styles. So don't compare your grief to the grief of others. All right. Well, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, You have a sense for how much effort we put into this show's creation, and and we do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and doctors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. Okay, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Leda Maliga, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.